My name is Anthony Capazzoli, and this is the Dismantled Life Podcast, where we share stories of hope, love, and strength from the darkness of addiction into the sunlight of sobriety. These are stories from people just like us who have lived through the pain and made it. No matter how bad it gets, just know that you can and will recover. It takes work. It takes hard work. Each week, we talk in detail about what it takes to make it, what it takes to beat your addictions. I am a recovering addict from alcohol, cocaine, and nicotine. My addiction started in eighth grade. I am now 50. I had over 40 years of very bad habits to break. I hit rock bottom hard. More than once, I nearly died. I would have left my wife and two young children behind. I've been clean and sober for nearly three years. I completely dismantled my entire life and rebuilt it from the ground up. I believe to make it in recovery, it takes a physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual approach. It takes a positive mindset. It takes hard work. It takes a village. Join me weekly to learn from my sober superhero guests on the Dismantle Life podcast. Subscribe and follow on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere you listen to your podcasts. Check me out at dismantle.life. Email me at anthony at dismantle.life anytime. Please be sure to leave a rating and review anywhere you listen to your podcasts. And let me know if you want to be on the show. Happy recovery. Everybody has their story. That's for sure. And I know in my book, Erasing the Bottom, I don't know if you've checked it out, but you really, well, you know what I like about my book is I did, because you know, I'm a registered nurse too. Yes. Yes, I do. So I did like a chapter to doctors, nurses, and healthcare, because there's a lot of stuff in here that from working in healthcare for 25 years, it's shameful what's going on. That's a whole podcast episode. Believe me, it's shameful what's going on. And then I also did like 10 other voices in the back of the book, kind of like the big book is the stories in the back of the book, because I thought, you know, I had, well, you'll hear, but I mean, I did not have a low bottom. And so I don't have a lot of horror stories. And people tend to think that they can't be an alcoholic unless their life is in the gutter. And so I wanted to write something and find people that had higher bottoms. That, I love it. That you don't have to like, you know, be this homeless guy on the street before you realize you have an issue. Because my mother did kind of go there and, um, you know, she tried to get help. And that's why I was like this whole healthcare piece is really missing in recovery because the the a lot of people they they I think people have almost this unhealthy trust with doctors that they went to medical school they know what they're doing and honestly they really don't and sitting in treatment team with them and you hear them going I don't care well let's try this who knows I got to get to my kid's soccer game as they're flying out the door I mean do you know what I mean their parents they're people and they don't care about you as much as people think they do. So when I have people saying, oh, my doctor, my doctor, you know, it's like there's that rare doctor out there that people do maybe have a relationship with and have been with the family for years or whatever. But that is few and far between anymore. And mostly these doctors really don't care. They just want to give you a script and get you out of their office. And they don't care what happens to your life. Once you leave and that door shuts, they could care less. I don't think people understand that. So I had to do a chapter on that. And I did a chapter, what your kids say about you and your drinking, because I feel like children are 
highly underrepresented. And I know that it brings up a lot of guilt in parents and whatnot. But you know what? Maybe we need to see their perspective. Maybe that'll help people stop sooner than later. You know what I mean? If I you do. Know your kids suffering. I mean, that was, I was only sober a little bit. Or I mean, yeah, I was only a couple of weeks sober when I got pregnant. But that was an incentive, you know, to not have. Oh, yeah growing up with an alcoholic mom. I didn't want that for my kids. My last episode that it's just released on um, last Friday, Jenny was the guest and she is also a registered nurse. We didn't dive too deeply into the medical side of it, except to say that she was exposed to it, both being on the nursing side as a nurse Mm -hmm. and then also as a recovering alcoholic and having to live in the intensive outpatient care where she would go and didn't stay over in the recovery process. So the, but we, I learned a lot about that process as well. Both of these topics are extremely interesting to me. And I think one of them around the medical side is I, I agree with you. I think that doctors and nurses are absolutely do their respect, of course. But I also think that in order to be good at helping people through recovery, through addiction and being and getting and staying sober, I think you have to have a little bit of that in you. I think having lived it gives you a credence or some kind, not authority, but I think it gives you the real sense of what it's like. What's going on. Yeah. Right. Now, here's the other sad part. Unfortunately, my nephew is engaged to a doctor. She's just graduated medical school. And so I said, Jessica, what you guys learn about addiction? Anything? She said, no. How sad is that? I mean, this is today's world. This, yeah. You know, it's so relevant. And why aren't they teaching it in medical school? It's, you're right. It's crazy. Not interested. It's nuts to me that, honestly, that uh, it isn't covered in medical school. And I think it should be part of a curriculum at, say, the very least, maybe an active after graduation, perhaps, when you're on rotation. Because that's all they're going to run into. You know what I mean? When I worked in the emergency room, literally 80% of what's coming through the doors is diseases related to drugs and or alcohol. Trauma. I worked at a level one trauma center where the helicopter bringing in crash victims and, you know, gunshot wounds. Drugs and alcohol were always lurking in the background of most of the traumas, you know, not all, but most. Yeah, it's a, it, both of them are interesting. So maybe we could start if you if you don't mind. I would yeah. love to hear your backstory a little bit. And it's, so one sure. thing, too, that I want to touch on the medical side of it, the kids and then. How rock bottom doesn't have to be as rocky as most people think there you too. Oh, that's well said. I like that. I, I had a rough rock bottom, but to uh, out so someone looking in, they wouldn't have really noticed my rock bottom. My rock bottom is so hard because of my personal experience with it. But from the out from some the layperson looking in, they would have never noticed. Right. Every all the props are in place. I like to all say. the props perfectly stated. Everything is in place. Yeah. Everything was in order. So right. I would like to talk about. Maybe not so rocky a bottom, perhaps. I love that. Yeah, because that's my, that's really my whole focus. My whole message is we do not have to hit these low bottoms and have these war stories to qualify for recovery. I agree wholeheartedly with you because I think that most people, if maybe they just realized they had a problem before it got so bad. Right. That, that they, you know, maybe there would be some, some differences there, well, but maybe, think, you know, the guilt and the shame and the, especially moms. I mean, so many of these women, they do, when they finally get sober, they beat themselves up forever. You know, it's hard to let go of that. And if you can get sober a little bit early, that saves you that much less 
angst, you know, down the road. So my journey started with my mother. I talk about it in my book, how we are like entwined, like beads on a necklace. Because, you know, when you're raised with an alcoholic mom and my mother, I have to talk about her so that I can talk about me. And her addiction started with Valium. That was the first billion with a B dollar drug of the of the 60s. And she was a registered nurse and she had four kids and this crazy Italian husband who was not at all helpful. And um, so she started taking Valium via the doctor. And our life ended up being one trip to the drugstore after the other, after the other. And that's how her addiction started. And then it escalated later on with, I mean, I would say my mother was always a social drinker. She'd have a few drinks and get all giggly and, and whatnot. And that was about it. And I remember my parents having card club, those kind of things. My father was not a big drinker. I mean, he's he drank, but not you know, once in a while, you'd see him have a beer after mowing the lawn or at holidays or when they went out or whatnot, but it was not a staple in our home. And so my mother, as her addiction escalated, it became very much. But even then, I think there was a part of her that knew that it was not quite right. So we found a lot of bottles hidden in cupboards, in the bathroom, in the towel drawer, that kind of stuff. And she, um, the car wrecks were constant. The I'm sorry, the, like the car accidents, like car accidents. Yeah, she was. Uh, I mean, we were we were all terrified to drive with her. I, I remember like this one <laughs> vivid scene where no, it's true. And some of I don't it, mean to laugh. I I, I don't mean to laugh because some of it is tragically funny. Yeah, you know. But I remember like she's barreling toward this stoplight and she is not slowing down at all. Her foot never hit the brake. And that's how I opened Raising the Bottom. Literally her foot never hit the brake. The front end of the car is gone. This is the day before seatbelts. So my brother and I are tossed around like little rag dolls in the car. Thank God nobody's hurt. So she stumbles out of the car and she gets the, the police believing that she's diabetic. And she's having this episode. Well, she's not diabetic. She was drunk. But, you know, back then they didn't breathalyze you. Um, her brothers were prominent. Her family was prominent. She got off everything. She called one of her brothers. I think my dad was out of town and nothing happened, you know. So this kind of went on. But she would do outlandish things. You know, you'd find her as her addiction really escalated. We'd find her under the dining room table, passed out a lot. We'd find her in the garden, passed out. She would cook food and never take it out of the package. So you've got these black smoke fires billowing through the house. I mean, it was just insane. It was insane, you know? And on her good days, when she tried to parent, then we were kind of like, go sit down. Because we were running in the asylum, you know what I mean? I had two older sisters and a younger brother, and we're all just running amok. We're all off the chain. And I had a horse. So I think that did save me from not getting into drugs and alcohol at a really, really young age. Because I had my first 
beer and joint at 12 years old. So I was dabbling, but then this horse became far more important to me than, you know, any of that. So I really, I do, I think it saved me and my drinking, you know, it was there in the background, um, but not heavily still though started drinking at 12 and i remember you know this should have been a good clue like at some school dance i drank a whole bottle of slow gin it is that red syrupy yeah that red looks like woman's white carpet you know at the i'm like oh my god so i think of that now i <laughs> wanted to just come unglued right i was, yeah so you know but you don't think about those things because it still feels kind of normal. So, you know, I go off and I'm floundering in high school. And um, what did I do? Oh, I started into beauty school where I'm going to do hair. So I'm doing this and I'm partying like crazy. And I can't seem to finish this nine month little program. So I end up graduating high school, moved to Columbus, go on to beauty school there, drinking and partying my way up and down High Street at Ohio State. And that was, again, you know, it was out of control, but we don't look at it that way because I'm still young. Like you can get away with a lot when you're oh, yeah. between 18 and 25. I think you can have really bad behavior, but people just say, well, you're young, you're in that college mode. And right. that's kind of how it was for me. So I was not all that worried about it, but, you know, things started to manifest looking back that, I had been in and out of college for a decade and never finished a degree. So why was that? Well, because I'm partying and when spring rolls around, instead of going to class, I'm partying on, you know, and running the bars and dropping classes and that kind of stuff. Sure. And uh, my, I, I was living with a gal at the time and she came home and said she was getting married. So, you know, my mom is at the, low end of her alcoholism by this time. And there's no way I want to move home because I left home the day after two days after I graduated high school, I left and I moved to Columbus from Youngstown where I grew up. So when you say low end, do you mean that your mom is uh, deep into alcoholism? She is at that? deep into alcoholism. She is okay. not functioning at all. I see. And, you know, she's doing the, the real alcoholic nightmare. She's going to psych wards. They're yeah. doping her up with antipsychotics, misdiagnosing her all over the place. And that's why earlier we were talking why I'm so passionate about the healthcare aspect, because they're doing a horrible job. And what happened to her is continuing to happen. Yeah. So they're medicating her with Thorazine and uh, Haldone, all these awful drugs. And she's a zombie. And she's coming home, drinking falling down. I mean, this cycle is going on and on. And my father's taking her to the Cleveland Clinic and he's taking her to all these therapists and psychiatrists and nobody is diagnosing her correctly as an alcoholic. So she's getting worse and worse and worse. And I can take no more of this. And so I leave. I felt bad. I had a little brother. He's still there with all that mess. So I leave. And um, yeah, so I'm doing my own thing at Ohio State and I'm getting drunk like she is. And um, my roommate that I was living with at the time, she came up and said she was getting married. And I'm like, what? We're like 19, right? So she's getting married. I can't afford to live alone. And lo and behold, some guy is walking across the parking lot. And then he, I found out there was this 
phone kept ringing. I'm living in this really crappy apartment, but it had a very convenient location next to the Varsity Club bar and across the street from the OSU Stadium. So, I mean, forget <laughs> that we have roaches and we can't use the oven because the place is a disaster, but the right. location is superb. So we keep the apartment, but I realized I can't even really afford this crappy apartment. So I end up there's this guy upstairs and he, I go up and tell him, you know, to move his car. And I think I, I had a few, ex, you know, other speech in there when I told him to move the car. Of course. Yeah. And two months later, I marry this guy. So wow, like, yeah, he is Mr. Unstable. He's more unstable than my mother. Okay. And I see the red flags, but I'm ignoring them. And of course. got this big blue Cadillac. So I find out later, I mean, I thought the car was kind of cool, but I didn't realize it was his apartment per se. So he's basically living in the blue Cadillac. Um, he's he's just off the chain and he right. introduces me to a little bit of cocaine. Yeah. I'm a Catholic girl, right? Roman Catholic. So we go to the church and we're going to do all these marriage classes. Well, he's lying his ass off because I'm wife number three. That I find out later after right. the fact. The, the priest who marries us dies. I felt like that was very auspicious. He died a few months later after he married us. I mean, probably did him in because the whole church is going, oh, no, this terrible idea, terrible idea. So, right? so the priest auspiciously this, this, passes yeah, away. He dies. I mean, so that kind of like sealed the deal for where this marriage is going, right? So... It, I mean, it was just a crap show. It was absolutely the most horrible decision I ever made. And truly, the red flags were there. But I kind of felt like between a rock and a hard place. And, you know, you realize these things down the road. I'm totally using this man because I basically need a roommate. And he's right. the best offer I've got going. Plus, I will tell you, when he was sober, he was witty and charming. And I didn't realize he drank so much. I think he was kind of hiding that. But like I said, we had a very short courtship of a couple months. So I barely know the guy actually by the time you get married. So we get married. And of course, it's a disaster. Now I'm doing coke with him. He's the kind of guy showing up with wads of cash or none at all. Broke, completely broke. I find out he's like a compulsive gambler. And he loves that game Pac-Man. Do you remember that? So I do remember that, of course. Sure. He spent a lot of time at the local watering hall getting proficient at Pac-Man. And I'm still going to school. So I'm feeling somewhat productive and not too much like a loser because I'm in college yet again. Now I think I'm, yeah, I'm still in my, what, 20, 20 years old. So it's still okay. I'm waiting tables. And I'm yeah. going to school and this guy is just off the chart. So one of the things I, I used to do, drink and then lots of cocaine and smoke cigarettes. And I can't imagine myself coked up playing Pac-Man. I, I would oh, rage yeah. every time I die. I think I would just go off the handle because he was I was nuts. I mean, this guy, I don't think he ever got sober. Sadly, I don't know. After I tell you the last time I saw him. So here's how that marriage ended. So one night, I think he was in a blackout. And he got physically abusive and he threw a little portable TV that literally missed my head by just millimeters. So I slammed the door of our spare bedroom. I'm calling my sister and um, I didn't know this, but she had called my father. So you don't get your Italian daddy all mad. And he gets up in the middle of the night and drives to Columbus because he's going to kick this guy's butt. Right. So he brings my mother who's, 
at the height of like the epitome of her alcoholism, her liver looks like she's nine months pregnant. And we're sitting at this ratty little table in my apartment and they get there about six in the morning and my mother's doling out Valium to help me calm down. And she's smoking and sighing and my father's raging and my husband is passed out in the bed. So my father wants to go in there and drag him by the ankles to get his butt up and we're going to have a uh, you know, rendezvous in the kitchen. So this guy is like, oh, can I just get a shower? So my dad relents, right? He goes in the shower. We're sitting there, mom's smoking. I'm crying probably. And it's getting longer and longer and the water's running. So finally my dad says, go see what he's doing in there. Jumped out the window. As the shower curtain is fluttering in the breeze. See, you know, that's exactly what he did. I've never seen him again in my whole life. That was the last time I saw that man. Are you shitting me? I'm not kidding you. He escaped out the bathroom window and I've never seen or heard from him. Well, that's not true. I heard from him one other time after the bathroom escape months later. He wanted his TV back. (laughs) (laughs) And the the shitty couch and everything else. He said, uh, well, I get a divorce called notification of publication. See, I didn't even know this was an option. So I go to a priest, right? I'm on an annulment. And he's yeah. laughing. He goes, oh, sweetheart. So he takes me to a lawyer. I didn't even realize that like the annulment is the church thing. The church side of it, yeah. A civil divorce. I didn't know that. So he takes me to a lawyer and I get this divorce by notification of publication. They put this ad in this obscure paper that nobody reads. And if he doesn't respond in 90 days, then you go to the judge and voila, you're divorced. So that's kind of how that happened. So he calls me maybe three months or four months, whatever. And he says, oh, Lisa, I'm in Texas. Why don't you come down? I'm like, no, we're divorced. And he said, well, why did you go and do that? I'm getting myself together. And I just like hung up the phone. Gotta, hang so on. Done with yeah, yeah. So that like, doesn't I, even, yeah. you don't even ask where in Texas. Right. You just hang up. We're done. Phone. So that was that, you know. And so I meet someone else three years later, and that's the husband that I'm still married to. Um, we just celebrated 35 years yesterday, which is congratulations. Shocking. We cannot that's even wonderful. believe it. Yeah, yesterday was our 35th wedding anniversary. Congratulations. That's crazy. I mean, we've been through some crazy stuff. So I meet this guy and we're both partying like rock stars. And, you know, that's kind of how it went. And we moved here to Dayton from Columbus. And then we ended up, my husband was studying for the bar exam and he got an opportunity out of the blue. He took it. We ended up in Oklahoma. I ended up, uh, my drinking was not really that bad there. I mean, we're drinking really on the weekends. Yeah. Then I get a job with the airlines and I go to Texas. And then while I'm in this training for six weeks, my husband gets promoted and ends up in Dallas. And so my drinking did pick up a lot with the flying because you're, I mean, I really enjoyed that lifestyle because it really spoke to my ability to function well in chaos. And so there was, you know, when you're a new flight attendant, I didn't have a regular route. So they're calling me and I'm either going overseas or I'm going here, I'm going there. And it worked for me. And we have this commute. And so we're meeting all over the place and we're just having like one big date. And that's really what the first year of marriage was, like one big date. And we found this Marty's in Dallas, this amazing gourmet wine store. And we're buying wine by the case and we're drinking and we're eating all this great food and we're just having a lot of fun. 
Sure. So his brother dies suddenly and we get a call and we end up moving back to Ohio. And I believe that's when I crossed the line into like active alcoholism because I could not, I get a job. I did hair for just a little bit, realized I'm going to starve doing hair because I hated it. And I sucked at it too. (laughs) That was not going to work for me. (laughs) And I talked myself into this advertising and marketing job. I didn't know a thing, but um, (laughs) nothing. And uh, I don't know, this guy liked me or something. So he hired me and I end up learning a lot. And that's really where I discovered I like to write. So I'm doing all these media buys and writing brochures for these hotel management companies, what I was doing. And so my drinking is really picking up because now there was a couple like people that were selling me radio advertising. So we go and have those liquid lunches. And of course. I'd come back to work and I'm trash, but I just shut my little office door, take a little cat nap, wake back up and carry on, you know? Yeah. And I remember one day though, going to my little home bar that I used to hit every day at lunch and um, my drinking, knowing what I knew about alcoholism, because by now my mom is sober. She had finally, she had an accident. She ended up finally getting into rehab because a doctor finally recognized her for what she was. And she went to rehab and she never looked back and she died with 30 years sober. So she's sober now. My drinking I started to notice the progression. So I'm going to this little favorite bar to have a beer at lunch. And now I'm having four beers and now I'm having vodka. And now I'm like getting trashed, you know, pretty much. So I did notice that and it started to niggle at me. You have those little voices, conversations in your head. I don't know if you yeah. did that where you're like, Oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So I'm starting to have those and I'm thinking, eh, but I'm still justifying it because, you know, like we were talking earlier, the props are all in place. I'm married to a professional. I've got a job. I'm showing up to work. You know, everything is fine. And um doing a lot of drugs with a friend, a lot of coke. This one friend, her husband was in a band. So she spent a lot of time. And so was her and my husband and, and whatnot that were, you know, just having this fun. And um, that bar though, that lunchtime bar, I go one day and I'm pulling on the door and I'm like panicked because it's not opening. And when I looked at my watch, it was only 10 a.m. So that was like a real slap in the face to me that I went, wow, you know, like I really wanted that drink and I could feel that panic rising in me when I couldn't get it. So that really was a wake up call, but that still was a couple of years before I quit, but I'm really starting to think, okay, maybe my drinking is not so normal. But, you know, I, I you brush those episodes aside and you carry on. And that's pretty much what I did. And then um, what was, I don't know. I know my husband said something about my drinking. No, he didn't really say anything about my drinking. He said about my emotions. He's like, I don't know what's going on with you. But, you know, when you're up and down and up and down and I'm either raging or laughing or very unstable and that's not my norm. I mean, I'm not yeah. an unstable, volatile person, but I was extremely volatile when I'm drinking. You just really never knew what you're going to get. And so that was kind of the other thing. And then I had this other, I, I don't know, I kind of feel like it was divine intervention because within a week, I remember setting up these little parameters for myself that if I ever 
shook because I had no physical symptoms whatsoever. Um, I was not a daily drinker and I struggled believing that I could have a problem when I didn't drink every day. Now I was probably drinking five days a week, but still wasn't every day. And in my mind, alcoholics were like my mother. She couldn't go five minutes without drinking. So how could I be an alcoholic? You know, that kind of thing. So yeah, I I couldn't possibly, I'm not as bad as that person. So I'm fine. Right. I mean, and you can really justify, like I said, you know, I mean, all these props are still in place and nobody else was saying, wow, you have, in fact, I start surveying the bar you know hey do you guys think i have a drinking problem of course oh, i know you're fine here you're yeah. absolutely fine let me get you a drink yeah, yeah. So <laughs> like, okay all these people can't be wrong i must be fine right? right i'm fine and then i'm bartending for a little bit i'm still in that <laughs> restaurant world you know and then you do a line of coke and you figure exactly. fuck it i'm great yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then my husband is like jesus you got to find yourself so he had this guy that was like a brother to him that was going to go into the bakery business, right? So it was kind of like, well, let's come on, Lisa, be my partner in this bakery. So I go into this bakery business. That was another whole dysfunctional story, but we're right next to a bar. So when I'm having a temper tantrum and I'm throwing donuts practically through the plate glass window because the guy, I'm a foodie. Well, I go into business with this guy who cream of shit tasted good to him. He had a terrible palate. (laughs) So he's making these greasy, horrible donuts. And I'm just apoplectic about it. I cannot handle how bad this food is, you know? So we're- I can't serve this fucking donut. This is terrible. He finds the most dysfunctional employees that was, you know, this one guy was regaling us about his tales of no electricity and- (laughs) <laughs> oh, it was bizarre. So that was so dysfunctional. And I am beside yeah. myself. So I just run to the bar. Literally, it's 12 steps next door. And so I'm pretty much drinking all the time now because this bakery is not going the way I want it to go. Right. And Fred is in there smoking, smoking the, the donuts are around this blue haze. It was just pathetic. Yeah. So... I was just getting so done with it. So then I think my bottom, here's kind of my bottom. It was all during that time. And then my husband finally said something. So when his brother died, we got this little Honda scooter, like a little mini motorcycle. My favorite thing to do was to put a course light in each pocket of my jacket, ride around, of course, with no helmet and drink my beer and go through the drive-thru and just get a beer. So I guess I did this all day one day. And the guy at the drive-thru finally says, lady, why don't you just buy a damn 12-pack? And I look at him and I'm like, what are you talking about? I am not going to drink that much. I felt like I'd been slapped. You know what I mean? Right. And so I go home and I drink my thing and I look and, oh, my God, the trash can really is kind of cascading over with beer cans. So I really did drink a 12-pack. And that's why. So that was like shocking to me. Like I saw it for the first time. I really saw it because I think I did drink like one and get rid of it. That's kind of, I was a neat and tidy drinker. And I think I subconsciously did that because I really didn't want to face how much. I never let the cans pile up. You know what I mean? I I never did drink like that. I was always, even when I was partying with people. I was the one always, you know, or I could still leave a bar with a half a drink on the bar. 
And I was often the, the designated driver who would not get as drunk as the rest. So I'm driving people home. I never had a DUI, you know, all these things. But between that, that episode with the trash can, that beer drive through guy saying that, and then the next morning I woke up and I did swear I saw a little shake. But it was enough that had been one of my things if I ever shake. And that bothered me so badly. And that really was my bottom. And I called my mom and I said, I think I need to come home. And I went home and she was like my little treatment center because she got all her AA buddies now. Because like I said, she's sober seven years now. And so it was like 10 days. I was going to say 10 days, but I was there probably about a week. And I realized like I really felt loved and nurtured there, but I don't live there. I live here in Dayton. So I said, you know, mom, I got to go back home. So I'm sober about three months. I have this one day relapse, was at a meeting actually, and did, you know, I've been going to meetings pretty much every day for three months, but I didn't do anything. I just showed up Passive. and I was angry, even though I, nobody told me I had to go to AA, but I, I decided on my own because I saw my mother change so dramatically when nothing else had worked for her for 25 years of therapy and doctors and medication, nothing had worked. And she, like I said, she'd gotten worse and worse and worse. So I thought, well, it worked for her. I'll do that. But so I go, but I don't change, you know, I don't do anything. I don't get a sponsor. I don't really listen. And I'm just angry. And we're saying the Lord's prayer one day. And I decided I'm going to Quigs and I'm, which was the bar across the street from the AA club. And I'm going to go and have a drink. And I did. And I went to the drive-thru and had a bottle of wine and got violently ill. I'm not that much alcohol. And that was my bottom. And I decided, why am I doing this? And so I was sober for real for a couple of weeks. And then I find out I'm pregnant with twins. And so that, um, that was another very difficult time because then I ended up without going into a lot of detail about it, but I ended up on bed rest in the hospital. And so I had to make a decision. I was going to swallow my pride, you know, and I told these, my doctor and I told the nurses and I'm sure they were a bit appalled, but I'm like, look, I knew I was on bed rest, but at that, the hospital where I was had a treatment center and I knew they did meetings. And I said to the doctor, you've got to write an order and they need to wheel me down. It was clear on the other side of the hospital, but you need to wheel me down there so I can go to the meeting. So once a week I had a doctor's order, they did. And I'm hooked up to my IVs and I'm like this, I'm, you know, like a balloon about ready or a whale more like, but that's where that I don't know. I feel like that was my second miracle that I just didn't care about my pride, how it looked, who was embarrassed. Like I said, my husband was a lawyer and I think he, I don't know if he was embarrassed or not. He never said anything to me if he was, and I'm glad he didn't because I probably would have axed him out. You know what I mean? But I know that like alcoholism just wasn't really like it is today. It was still, you know, there was no online communities. There, right. Very you know, shameful. Still, and when I got sober, believe me, when I walked in day, there was not that many women. I mean, most of the, the meetings were older men. And that's why I struggled because these men have been drinking for decades and they've been drinking bottles of alcohol for decades. And I did not relate to that. And yeah. so it was a little more challenging to hear my story 
And I'm glad, though, that people said things like, you know, look for the similarities, identify the feelings. How did they feel? And and when I could get rid of the, but I'm not like them age-wise, this, that, or the other, because I'm in my late 20s, you know, when I go. And finally, I did find some women. And, and I realized there were women. I just wasn't seeing them. And I did have to find some women's meetings and, and things like that. But initially, and I did get sober with a lot of men, and I still prefer mixed meetings because I love both perspectives, you know. But um, one of the things that strikes me the most is your uh, identification, or at least your understanding now of the active versus passive participation in AA, where at the, the before you went across the street to have the drink after the AA meeting, before that, you mentioned it was passive participation right. versus active. And I, I think that that's one major takeaway, at least for me too, that I had to, you have to make the choice to get better. It's, it doesn't have to be a significant event, like you, like meaning that, like you'd mentioned, rock bottom doesn't have to be the rockiest, most miserable hell on earth. It could be as simple as that little flutter of a shake or looking at, like you'd mentioned, the overflowing beer cans, the 12 of them in, in the, the garbage. Like those little tiny things, they don't have to be tiny or I'm not suggesting that no, it's tiny. Right. But what I'm saying is it doesn't have to be. I took lives in a car accident right. rock bottom. It could be that tiny moment for you, that choice where you now become an active participant in your sobriety. And that's what I love about your Couch story. that. Really, that is a very good way to couch it because that's exactly right. I mean, I was just showing up, you know, and for the people that say, well, I went to a meeting and it didn't work. Well, right. it doesn't work if you don't do anything else but show up. I did one sit up. And I still have exactly. 35 extra pounds on me. <laughs> I just wasn't ready. And I know, you know, I, at the meeting that I went to, or a lot of the meetings, they read how it works. And that one line, the result was nil until we let go absolutely. And I had heard that for three months and I never really heard it. But then when I went back after that one day relapse, I heard it. And it literally was the light bulb or the key or whatever that unlocked my sobriety, because I then realized if I, I, like they talk about, you're on that fence, you know, which way are you going to go? And I had to, like you said, make a choice. I'm either going to start listening and following directions, stop trying to compare myself out of the rooms and all of those things. And I did. And it was life changing when I realized the result really is nil until we let go and I had to let go of my old life and realize that, okay, you're not going to be going to bars anymore, hanging out and right. things like that. I was still trying to kind of do a little bit about that. And that friend, I was trying too hard to hang on to that relationship where she was getting extremely ill. And I later talk about where we take the directions. She ended up, she had two beautiful boys, but she ended up getting on crack and never raised them. And if you would have known what a wonderful person she was before, that's where her addiction. And I think of her so, so often, but for the grace of God, you know, had I hung on to that relationship, you know, a lot of times people in recovery, they feel bad about friends and that. And she was a dear friend, but I had to let her go because if I would have hung on, I could have went there with her. You know, I, I would like to say, well, I would never try crack, but you know what? You get drunk enough, you'll do anything. Yeah, where, you, know. you know, people that are heroin users who say, 
well, I can still drink. I'm not an alcoholic. Well, they get drunk enough, the needle's in their arm. You know, that happens over and over. So addiction is the same big ball. And I'm glad I never found that out because who knows what, you know what I mean? That I'm very grateful that I didn't try crack. That that isn't a part of my story. And I'm very grateful for that. I mean, Coke was the only drug that I did. And I'm just very grateful to not have, you know, I think I did drop acid once when I was 15 and not good. Yeah. Had a very creepy trip off that. So that was the end of that. But um, yeah, so that was kind of my bottom. And then Getting sober, you know, I'm living with a man who still drinks. Um, so that's been a challenge in my sobriety. It really has. And, you know, is he an alcoholic? I don't think so. He's very functional. He's been a great provider, a great dad, a great spouse. But I'd be lying if I didn't say we haven't had a lot of arguments over alcohol where I felt there have been times when it's been very disrespectful. You know, I've got these twin boys that are amazing sons. They're 30 now, but they drink. They've married women who drink, unfortunately. So it it does concern me. You know, I mean, their lives seem to be going, but the isms, you know, you seem like, oh my God. Um, so I worry about it, but, you know, that's a whole other thing. So, you know, I get sober and this is, what I really like to talk about for a minute too is that sobriety is about jumping into the mainstream of life. You know, I feel like sometimes people they get sober and there is that period where that adjustment period where it feels a little boring. I was so used to a lot of chaos and then the flight attendant life and the different cities and the marriage is a big date and it's fun. And then now it's not fun anymore because it's right. real life and it's nine to five and my husband's working and I'm like, oh shit, what do I do? And so, you know, I'm sober, I'm pregnant. I have these babies after that difficult um, thing. I stayed home with them. For about six months, I had a miracle kind of happen while I was in the hospital. So I'm going to meetings and while I'm in the hospital incubating these babies, this after I have the kids, I get a blood clot. So I think they were like three months old. And this gal from the program walks into my room and I'm like, oh my gosh, what are you doing here? And she was a nursing assistant and she said, I'm in nursing school. And that just, I went, it just that's it. Yeah. And I rolled over and I picked up the phone and I enrolled in school for that fall, which the kids were six months old. And my husband blows a gasket because he's furious that I'm going to go to school after just having these babies. And my thinking, and it took us years for I don't think he ever really understood. My thinking was. I had pissed away that whole decade of my 20s when people are setting up their life. They're finishing their education. They're going to grad school. They're going to law school. They're going to med school. They're doing whatever they're going to do, right? I totally blew that whole decade in and out of three different colleges. So I really felt strongly that maybe that maternal instinct did kick in. And I thought, I need to get a job, something where I can put food on the table for my children if this marriage doesn't work out, because I'm not going to depend on this man. I did not want to do that. With all of his objections, I ended up 
forging ahead and went to nursing school. And actually it was a blessing because, you know, when you start out, I was only gone for maybe five hours twice a week and it got me out. So I wasn't going completely insane yet. I was there, you know, with my sons. And so it worked out really well. And then there was a rough year where you are doing clinicals and all that. And it was hell. I don't know how I stayed sober, but my life was very, very small for three years. It consisted of meetings, nursing school and the grocery store. And honestly, that was my life. And and then twins, I I can't even imagine. I mean, it was so hard. And my husband was not that supportive of school at all. And actually his drinking was a bit off the chain during this time. I think he had so much resentment. So it was just a very toxic period in our marriage. Had I not been a strong person, I pretty much laid down the law with my husband. And I tell people, your sobriety has to come first. And so I made it very clear to him, do not try to get in between me and the meetings and sobriety because you will lose. And I just made that very clear. I mean, and I I don't know, I feel like that was divinely given to me strength to just not, you know, I, I, I could have been very fearful and oh my God, I have twins, but I'm like, no, because I just knew in my gut that my bottom could have looked very much like my mother's. I mean, I'm half of her, right? So that could have been a reality for me. All of the things that never happened to me could have easily happened. And I thought, I am not going to do this to my kids, having this crazy childhood like I had that was very toxic. And my father was a rageaholic and uh, physically abusive and mentally abusive and emotionally not there, you know, and it's like that was everything I did not want for my own kids. So I forged ahead and I graduated valedictorian of my class. And, you know, after graduating, got a job. And I'm very grateful. I only worked part time. I worked three days a week. I think that was back in the day before the 12 hour shifts. So I worked three days a week and it was a perfect balance for me that I was able to spend a lot of time with my kids. But I had that intellectual stimulation that you need to like get the heck out of the house. And, you know, that's when after that, then I started, it was, I wasn't at a nursing school, but four days. And I had this very spiritual experience in my kitchen where I was home alone and I'm cleaning up the kitchen and I hear a voice. Now I want you to write a book. I mean, I thought I was losing my mind. I went through every room of the house. I thought my husband or somebody came home. Him and the kids were gone. My sons were about four at the time. And I thought, oh my God, did I just hear that? And so literally... Was this that flashback from, from when you were 15 yeah, for that acid I mean, trip? You know, like, crazy. And, I, and so I ended up getting a computer and that sat in the corner of the spare bedroom for months. And I, you know, went to adult school and learned how to eat, blah, blah, blah. I could go on and on. But, um, you know, that was another gift from God because I think that saved our marriage. Because when my husband was in his insanity, I started writing fiction novels. And so, you know, I... Th- Raising the Bottom is my sixth book. So I wrote all these I books. love that. Yeah. So I was writing all these books and he's raging and drinking and being crazy. And I'm just writing my books and I'm ignoring <laughs> them, you know, and our marriage eventually. And I remember saying to God, like, if you want this marriage to break, you're going to have to fix it. I'm not going to counseling. I'm not doing any of it. I'm done. You know what I mean? Right. 
I'm also an an alcoholic and God damn it. I'm going to meetings and I'm doing, and that's enough. That's all I can do right now. I can't handle anymore. And yeah, so that's, and I just talk about letting go, right? We let it go. God, if you want it to work, fix it. And you know what he did? He fixed it. And it ended up being lovely. And I know those years when I was very, very unhappy. And I tell women that I work with now, play the tape forward, you know, get happy. I had to find a life of my own. And that's what I did. And, you know, like I said, he was a great dad. My husband was a wonderful dad. And I had to think about my sons. It wasn't just about me being happy. It's about what's best for my kids. The best thing for my children was to have their parents both living under the same roof with a mom who had the ability to work part-time because my husband is a good provider. Maybe some people would say, well, that's shallow. Well, I don't care. Actually, it was a great decision. And here we are 35 years later, you know, I had about seven years, honestly, where I was desperately unhappy, but between writing books, and then I also went back and got an English degree. So I'm writing all these books. I feel like a total fraud because when we read classics in high school, I can't remember a damn one of them because I'm drinking in high school. <laughs> so I go back and I get it. Catch her in the what? Yeah, yeah. you're like, what I'm the out, hell? You know, I've got my bachelor degree. I've got my nursing degree. I'm self-sufficient. And it all worked out. You know, that is sobriety. And that's what recovery is. It's like, you've got to get busy and get moving. I mean, if you're going to get sober... You need to get off the couch. You know, when you're drinking couch. and you're sitting on the couch drinking and you feel miserable and all that, I wanted nothing to do with that life anymore. So it was about getting into the mainstream of life, finishing my education. And like I said, my husband, I remember vividly, we had this one blowout fight because he's resentful now because he's paying for my college, for my nursing yeah. school. And he's like, well, you should have done it when your dad was going to pay for it. And I said, well, shoulda, coulda, woulda. Oh, shit. I'm doing it now. You're a lawyer. You'll be fine. He knew I was a waitress when he married me. You know what I mean? Well, I I love that you, going from passive to active, participation in sobriety. It was a wonderful moment from our conversation. But I also think one thing you mentioned, and then I want to hear more about your wonderful book, uh, is that Sobriety seems boring, but it's only boring against the backdrop of chaos. So when you give up the alcoholism and the alcohol and the drugs, of course, things are not going to be chaotic. They're going to be mellow. And it might feel boring for a minute, but the the beauty is in the simplicity and the beautiful routines of life, the normal routines of life without the crazy chaos. And I... That because I had a I, I love that side of it where it might it does take a little bit of getting used to. I tell people that I had 40 plus years of horrible habits to break. Right. So yeah, life is gonna be different and life is gonna seem a little bit boring because I'm not ripping lines of cocaine and slamming alcohol every chance I get. So yeah, it's boring, but it is a glorious, wonderful in the sunshine life for me now. Um, much like you've described. Right. And and I and I love that. That is beautifully story. said. How you said I mean, what what is my mom used to say, if you're bored, it's because you're boring. That's you know, right. <laughs> you get sober and you realize like, wow, when you're drinking, my life was a narrow hallway of I went to work and then it was all about the party. Yeah. Everything go to bed right. and you do it all over again. So what am I really doing with my life? I'm drinking right. and I'm working to sustain my drinking. So, Everything. you know, you get sober. And like you said, it does feel like, God, what do I do with myself? 
But everybody that I know who, you know, and it took a year or so. I mean, I just did a lot of meetings. And then, of course, going to nursing school when I'm brand new sober, that I think was very good for me because I look back and it felt like hell at the time. But that structure of was very good to help, you know, not want to have that chaos so much because I had a lot of structure and it was very hard structure with all the studying that. But looking back, I thought, you know, that was really probably what kept me focused and on the straight and narrow path. And then I have yet to meet a person that hasn't found their gift, you know, like, look, you're now doing podcasts and all these other cool things. So, you know, new recovery is an adjustment and, and you just want to encourage people to like, hang in there and stick with it and then start trying new things, you know, go volunteer, get a freaking job. If you don't have a job, if, Sit still and do nothing. You know, like just chill. Yeah, you know, there, there's whatever it is. I, I I couldn't agree more. I I love I love your story. And I can you tell us a little bit about? I know that we have a, a hard stop, and I'd love to learn more about your book because of your description of it, where rock bottom doesn't have to be so damn rocky. I love that. Right. So raising the bottom, making mindful choices in a drinking culture. So I wrote that book. Honestly, I feel like my mom died in 2011. And all the while when I'm writing fiction, she would say, what are you working on now, Lisa? And I tell her my, you know, and she said, why don't you write about alcoholism? And I would, you know, I'd say, well, mom, there's, there's so many legs to that stool, right? I mean, we could talk for endlessly about what avenue, what rabbit hole do you want to go down when it comes to recovery? So I don't know, one day, it just hit me like a ton of, I was like, and that's kind of how all of my books have happened. When they happen, it's just, I wake up literally one day, it's like, bam. And I just knew the angle that I wanted to approach. And so I wanted to approach raising the bottom. Like we said, how rocky does that bottom have to be? It doesn't have to be horrible. You don't have to kill someone in a drunk driving accident. You don't have to blow through three marriages before you finally, you know, you don't have to ruin your relationship with your children for good. I mean, that's so heartbreaking. And it happens to people because they drank too long. They waited too long. And I say, you know, the only thing that that is life changing is self-honesty. If we can be honest with ourselves, truly, that is the only thing that is totally life-changing. So if you see a progression in your drinking, and that's why these podcasts and things are so important that we talk about this so people understand early alcoholism could be nothing more than you notice that your drinking has progressed. So it could be it could be two drinks instead of one after exactly. dinner. I mean, it, and now you're drinking four days a week instead of two days a week, and now you're drinking three drinks four days a week. And so, so if you notice a progression, wake up and pay attention and start thinking, "Wow, am I using this to self medicate? What's going on?" You know, some people it may just be pure habit. And they're not even really aware of it. Once you become aware of it, you can put the brakes on. And then there's other people. If you find that you cannot put the brakes on, start thinking about, you know what? Maybe I am an alcoholic. And get on and start listening to podcasts or check out AA or do whatever you need to do. But start trying to get 
a little bit of self-honesty. So that's kind of the focus of my book. And I picked um, people that did not have dramatically low bottoms like my mother did. You know, some of them were lower than mine, but I chose people. I have three doctors in the book. One was a surgeon who said uh, she never thought she could have a problem because she's working, doing surgery, coming home drinking wine, but her kids were so distressed because, you know, after you have a few drinks, you're not the same person. And they found the giggling and the stuff. They just were really turned off by it. How, what she, you know, and so her bottom was doing that one night and seeing the look on her kids' faces. She said she drove back to the hospital, told her surgery partners, I think I'm an alcoholic. And they said to her, surely you're not. I mean, these are surgeons who didn't want to believe one of their partners could be an alcoholic. Shame on them. But this is where we are in healthcare, You know, so I wanted to talk about those kinds of things. The people that, you know, I have another doctor in the book. She was an ER doctor. And she said, I picked that specialty even way back in medical school. I didn't want to take call that would interfere with my drinking. So she knew back then. So there's a lot of doctors who are alcoholics. I just want to tell you all that. That's another reason to question your doctor. You know, the average population who's going to be an alcoholic is about 10%. In physicians, it's 14%. You know, maybe the stress of their jobs or whatever. Um, So those are the kind of people. I also did moms. I have a chemical. Most There's mostly women, but there are a few men in the book. One was a chemical dependency counselor, John. And um, He said that, you know, he did hit a lower bottom. He was digging, his addiction took him to digging graves. And he realized like, wow, I'm kind of digging my own grave if I don't get sober. And he did sober up and he's now a CD counselor. But um, so, yeah, so those are the stories that I wanted to tell. And like I alluded to early, I also did a chapter to what your kids say about you and your drinking, because there were two of the doctors had daughters that were like 16 and 15. And I asked them to write a letter. So they did. And at my book signing, there were tears coming down some of the people's faces because how these girls felt with their mother's drinking, you know, they feel the kids internalize it that you don't care about me. You care more about your drinking. And I can kind of relate to that because I don't know that I ever internalized my mother doesn't care. I think I just became so calloused. And even now I'm probably not, you know, people that I sponsor, they all know she's not going to be a warm, fuzzy sponsor. So, and I think it's because I didn't get the nurturing that I, you know, deserved. And so um, my sponsor is very nurturing and empathetic. And I think I picked her to maybe teach me some of those qualities that I really wasn't taught well. So You know, it does impact us when we're raised with all this insanity around us, you know, and I had a lot of things that I had to work through with forgiving my father. I think some of his rage was just he felt so out of control, 
with my mother being so unstable. And so now I can understand that. But when you're a child, you know, I mean, you just, the self-esteem is like non-existent between this mother who can't parent you and this father who is just nothing but critical and just pretty much awful. You know, I mean, if he wasn't screaming, he wasn't saying anything. And I, you know, like I said, looking back, I think he was just terrified and he was fearful. And that came out as anger because he doesn't know how to really express, you know, and that was a different generation too. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and that, so you that's, know, so I, I love that you um, obviously I'm pointing fingers or blaming anybody, but anything, because you have to own, you have to own the addiction. You have to own your, your, your disease, your sickness. And I think that you've done a marvelous job of, of that. And I'm excited to read your book. Um, and I, I'm excited because of, of the layered approach that you have in the, through the eyes of the children is a fantastic talk about uh, life in real terms, having, yeah. uh, being a father myself of a, of an eight and a five-year-old now, oh boy. Yeah. Good, because, you know, I, I, I point out things that really tick me off. And, I you know, my kids, I have one grandchild now. And I, I wonder, I hope my kids are going to be aware of this. But anymore, you go to a three-year-old's birthday party and it's all about the beer and the wine for the parents. Oh, for like, sure. Why is it all about the parents all the time? You know what I mean? Right. If you can't have a three-year-old, like there's more beer cans and wine bottles than cupcakes and balloons. Now, it's true. if we yeah. allowed that to happen, you know, I mean, and I like to say, well, if you don't have a problem with alcohol, it shouldn't be a problem to not drink for two hours at a three-year-old birthday party, right? Exactly. If we re role model something better for the children than constant drinking and then why they're drinking at 12 and they're cutting themselves and they're having all these emotional problems because the parents aren't there. They're there, but they're not there because the parents are all about the parent party. And I know people don't want to hear that, but don't we have to talk about that? Listen, I am not blaming anybody for anything, but I made a hard choice because of my experience and how bad of an alcoholic and a drug addict that I was. I wanted to lead by example by the subtle approach to life, meaning I didn't want to have my kids see me drinking every day after work or whatever, whatever it is. And, and I, so my wife still drinks, but she's a very casual drinker. I mean, maybe a glass of wine or two uh, every three or four months. And, and I'm not justifying the level no, of drinking. That's not normal. what I'm saying. I'm not anti-alcohol for people like my yeah. can God bless her. You know what I mean? And if I drink That's like right. that, I would be drinking. I'm not going to lie. I mean, I absolutely, yeah. if I could have even one glass of wine a day, there's no doubt in my mind, I would be drinking, but I can't do that. Me neither. I would be, it'd be my first, that's the first domino to fall for me. And I'm calling my drug dealer and I'm going to get, it's, it would be a shit show. And, but I wanted to lead by example for my children. For me, this is me saying this about me and my children. I'm not suggesting to anybody listening that this is what they need to do. What I'm saying though, is for me, I wanted to break the cycle having grown up with an alcoholic father, may he rest in peace. God love mm -hmm. him. But I wanted to change the rule book, the playbook for my kids so that they could see a life without drinking every day or the, the, the phrase it's five o'clock somewhere. I think people need to realize how much fucking damage that can do when you plant that goddamn seed in some kid's yes. head that it's five o'clock somewhere. What do you think they're going to do? They're going to say, well, I'll be drinking in no time bullshit like that. And, and those little things or, and this is the other one, my friends will say, well, and I'm not pointing at any of in particular, and I say friends by people I've talked to through and around the show and other guests and things. One of the indicators that I always 
in the back of my mind, look at if you start drinking vodka sodas and all of a sudden you're drinking vodka rock splashes soda, which was my path. You again, you may have a problem. All you're doing is you're reducing the amount of alcohol and decreasing the amount of, uh, you know, right. the pour over. Exactly right. So those those little indicators all matter. They do and, matter, and if people understood that those are indicators and could be honest with themselves, not to brush them off and justify them, yeah. you know, maybe, absolutely, yeah. So I mean, there's just those things that, as a culture, everything is so boozy now. Very it wasn't much. like that when I was raising my sons. I mean, now women are going on play dates drinking. Like in what world does that make any kind of sense? So now you're driving home with three glasses of wine under your belt. That's drinking and driving with your babies on board. But yet we justify that. Or all you have to do is look on Facebook at like some of those wine memes and the stuff they sell or the shirt, like 2020, the only way to get through it is to drink. I mean, this is what kids yeah. see 24 seven. And we wonder why we have a drinking and drug problem in our country. So, you know, my whole book, I wanted people to like start being mindful of that kind of stuff. Like, okay, if I don't have a problem, then maybe I do need to be more aware of what I'm role modeling. Do I need to drink every day in front of my kids? If I really don't have a problem with alcohol, then maybe I need to wait till they're in bed so they don't have to see it, you know? And when you have kids drawing pictures at school, like with tears, you know, I wish my mommy did less of this and they're drawing a picture of a stick figure with a wine glass. That child is already very distressed because that's how kids express themselves. So if you've got a four-year-old drawing pictures of mommy with a wine glass, hello, you know, it's not funny. I mean, it's actually very sad. It really is. And Lisa, I know that you have another call, so I want to be mindful of, of your of your time. But I want to say thank you so much for coming on the show, telling your story, sharing details about your wonderful book, Raising the Bottom. I will have links to your book uh, in the show notes and details about where people can find you uh, to learn more about your other wonderful books as well. And thank you. I'll tweet it and put it on my social media too. Absolutely. And let me tell you though, I'm going to Say one more thing, and thank you so much for being a wonderful guest. I learned a lot from you. Thank you you for having me. It's been great talking with you.